this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, this is Ben and this is A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. How can you not know that already though? It's episode 99, folks, so we are only one away from the century, which I think is a small but significant milestone. So to mark it, there will be something a little different for the next episode. Just don't get your hopes up, is all I'm saying. In the meantime, I'm very happy to welcome as my guest this week, at long last, Mr. Zed Nelson. Before all that, before I introduce Zed properly, please bear with me for a bit of housekeeping. If you enjoy this podcast and you think, you know what, when I go to my local neighbourhood hipster coffee shop for a flat white, I willingly hand over between £2.50 and £3. For those of you in the States, it's been a while since I was over there, so I'm guessing it's four bucks for a coffee. Please don't tell me you're paying five bucks for a coffee. That's just insane. And that is taking the piss. But I digress. If you think you get the same level of value and enjoyment out of an episode of A Small Voice as you do out of that coffee, you can sign up for a recurring donation of five pounds per month or whatever that is in dollars or whatever currency you're operating in at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice. And that equates, of course, to less than one cup of coffee per episode. Bless you to every one of you who is already doing that. Or if you prefer, you can make a larger occasional donation at benjaminphoto.com slash a small voice. Do please leave a positive review on iTunes so that others may find out about the podcast. And if you should happen to be in need of a new website because your current one is pants, I will happily save you the trouble of sorting it out yourself by doing the whole darn thing for you using the Squarespace platform for a very competitive rate. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Finder.me, that's F-I-N-D-R.me, which is a two-sided marketplace for imaging professionals, providing clients with direct access to thousands of experienced photographers on a single platform, and in turn introducing photographers to hundreds of potential clients. Finder connects photographers with relevant customers based on location and type of photography services offered. Photographers can sign up quickly and easily and for free for corporate contracts at fixed rates, or they can set their own pricing to attract direct clients. And in stark contrast to some of their larger competitors, as I have said before, this is not part of the ad, this is just me improvising, the good people at Finder, they do care about you as a photographer, and they are committed to total transparency in the way that they do their business. Finder is for everyone in the photography business, from wedding planners to artists, and if you are a photographer, whatever type of photographer you are, go and open an account, Start filling out your profile and open up a whole new way of finding new work, finding new clients and finding new opportunities. Join up for free at finder.me and get found. See what I did there. This episode is also sponsored by the ever fabulous Charcoal Book Club, which is the first and only book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected names in contemporary photography to select a first edition monograph that is a must-have for every collection. Each book arrives signed by the artist along with a note card and print from the guest curator with free shipping to the US, Canada and the UK. Past curators have included Alex Soth, Mark Steinmetz, Andrea Modica, Todd Heido, Ron Jude and many others. February's book, which UPS informed me is arriving tomorrow, is Maine by Gary Brickley. So looking forward to that arriving. That's the second title from him that's come from charcoalbookclub.com. The best and most exciting way to stay up to date with essential work in contemporary photography. Right, to business. Zed Nelson lives in London where he grew up. 
and his work has been published and exhibited worldwide, having gained recognition and major awards as a documentary photographer, working in some of the most troubled areas of the world, Zed has increasingly turned his focus to Western society, adopting an increasingly conceptual approach to reflect on contemporary social issues. Gun Nation, a disturbing reflection on America's deadly love affair with the gun, was Zed's seminal first book. The project has been awarded five major international photography prizes and is regarded by many as the definitive body of work on the subject. Love Me, Zed's more recently published second book, reflects on the cultural and commercial forces that drive a global obsession with youth and beauty. The project explores how a new form of globalisation is taking place, where an increasingly narrow Western beauty ideal is being exported around the world like a crude universal brand. The project spans five years and involved photography in 18 countries across five continents. Love Me was nominated for the 2011 Deutsche Börse Photography Prize, shortlisted for the Leica European Publishers Award for Photography and received first prize in the 2010 Pictures of the Year International Awards. Previous awards include the Visa d'Or France, first prize in the World Press Photo Competition and the Alfred Eisenstadt Award USA. Zed's work has been exhibited at Tate Britain, the ICA and the National Portrait Gallery and is in the permanent collection of the Victoria and Albert Museum and he's had solo shows in London, Stockholm and New York. Great to finally pin Zed down. I know a lot of you have been hoping for me to get him on for some time so here he finally is. We had a long and wide-ranging chat much of which interestingly kept returning to his Gun Nation project and the continuing issue of the lunacy of America's lax gun control laws but we talked about much else besides. Here's Zed Nelson. finally get you you are an, an oft requested guest among my listeners Zed right that's nice to know yeah so I guess like what are you working on and can you any projects ongoing that you can sort of um, tell us about <laughs> this is going to end up being the worst interview in the world because I am starting a new photography project but I actually can't well, it's I under wraps can, but I it is under wraps partly because you know you get nervous at the beginning I mean I'm doing a film project which I've been doing for a couple of years, which I'm happy to talk about. Mm. Um, but you're reluctant to talk about the new thing simply because, you know, there's a certain element of uh, superstition or, or, like you say, just the feeling that um, it's not ready to, to even tell anyone about. Yeah, you know, you, you get... There's a point where you feel like you kind of own that, not subject, but, you know, the project. You know, you feel like it's beginning to be yours or you, your viewpoint. And then there's a time before that where you think, um, this is interesting. Has anyone else done it? Um, you know, who, who else has worked on themes like this? Uh, but it, it, like all the sort of recent big projects I've done, they're not um, – I'm not looking for the exotic anymore. I think I was at the beginning of my career. You know, I would be looking far afield in foreign countries, almost like that kind of cliched idea, like the National Geographic photographic cliche, mm. <clears throat> when you would travel the world finding the extraordinary. And I think my own approach has been to almost reverse that, to um, not sort of just fetishize the foreign or... Um, just look for sensation or you know yeah sensational things but but really to kind of start interrogating our culture I mean and I suppose the work that I did it always was looking at different cultures and the things that motivate us or drive us to do things 
Um, but it was it used to be more about the other. And so as well as I'm trying to make it more reflective and look at, um, I mean, like simply look at Western society more than um, what, what could be crudely described as the foreign. Mm. So look at the, our own inbuilt kind of dilemmas and problems. Um, so that's sort of made me turn things around. Yeah, so <clears throat> it's almost that thing that tends to happen quite a lot is that you you start you know one of the attractions of photography is the allure of foreign you know yeah, places and, and, and all that and 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 then yeah quite often you end up coming back to your own backyard as it were rather than starting in your own backyard which is the obvious yeah. thing to do so yeah. i'm assuming this is a a, a uk proje- a based project no i mean having said all that oh. it's not at all um <laughs> But it isn't, and it, I mean, it, it sort of loosely, um, you could say it, it, it's about, it's not about the environment, but it, well, it is actually, it's about, it's an environmental project at a time when obviously that's a key issue. Um, and, the, you know, the dilemma is how you approach a subject so big and don't sort of just fall into cliche or sort of familiarity. So... I'm in that kind of research stage where I'm developing something. Mm. Is it also partly, do you get that horrible kind of paranoia that someone else is going to end up, or, you know, it's going to turn out that someone else is doing the exact same project? That's another reason you kind of almost don't want to talk about it, you know, because that's always always a concern, isn't it? Kind of, yes. I mean, obviously, if you do something and you do it in your own way and you do it well, it's always going to be different. And right. it's always going to be interesting. So in some ways it's irrelevant. But on the other hand, if, you know, I mean, you know, like there's a film out at the moment called The Favourite, which is about, you know, Queen, is it Queen Anne? Anne? Yeah. And it's, you know, got a lot of attention. And then suddenly I noticed a few weeks later, there's another film about queen, a queen. Mm. Uh, and I feel for that director because it's probably a really good film, but you don't want it coming in the wake of someone else doing... yeah releasing a film that's got that much attention so there are there are those kind of issues mm-hmm. obviously because you uh, a photographic project um it's so much work and then it's a lot of work to find a home for it and get it published and try and recoup money from it so you need to have everything on your side really it's already hard enough right exactly um, yeah 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 and you know for instance when i did love me i mean that this is another thing is that the, the subjects i'm choosing to look at are more and more um they're not obvious but they're they're all around us so you know someone might go and do something in tibet and it's very specific to that place and it's their little story and yeah, I'll do something about the sort of global beauty industry because it surrounds us and sort of envelops us and 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 conditions us and programs us. So it's kind of everywhere and nowhere. And um, so when I was doing Love Me, for instance, as a project, I would think, what, has, has no one done a project that really looks at the... It's not about the global industry, the global beauty industry. It's actually about the globalization of a beauty ideal, of a Western beauty ideal, and how the beauty industry affects us and um, coerce us and mm. trick us into doing things. So these are the things that interested me. But yeah, while I was working on that project, 
I would be very worried. I was thinking, where's the work on this subject? It's so, in a way, obvious. And so then I was very cautious. And I remember sort of in the last stages of it, I was really paranoid that someone was going to just release a big project. Right, yeah, after you've done that. all the work, yeah. Yeah, and then that would be agonizing. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I, it's not a subject I own. It's not my Mm-mm. thing. It, and yeah. it, I, it's something I believe we should think and talk about widely. So it's contradictory. In terms of that project, do you remember, though, what sort of sparked your interest in that? Was there a particular moment you can kind of recall where it, where it all started with that? Mm. In a way, not. I mean, the book I did before that was called Gun Nation, and that was about America's sort of deadly love affair with a gun. Now, if you ask me the same question about that book, it was much clearer because I'd photographed in a lot of conflict uh, countries sort of torn apart by conflict, uh, mostly in Africa. So I'd w- sort of witnessed the results of um, of societies saturated with weapons. And, and I'd gone through a whole stage of photographing conflict. And then I'd gone through this kind of uh, stage where I'd realised that all the guns that I was seeing being used to fight these kind of wars were all American or Chinese or British. So it got me thinking about the kind of global gun industry. And then in the end, I got involved in a kind of ambush situation in Afghanistan where I was nearly shot and a friend of mine sitting next to me was shot. Um, So then I kind of witnessed close up the feeling and the sort of terror of what a gun can and will do to you so then it became really personal so I'd gone through a stage of storytelling and then the sort of political awareness and then a personal kind of shock so I emerged from those experiences feeling that I wanted to really look at the gun industry and also turn away from doing kind of negative stories about Africa and look at more western culture and so it seemed suddenly clear that America was kind of at war with itself, that the statistics of the gun culture were producing the statistics of war. And so I've answered a question that you didn't ask me. No, no. I pretended I, you honest, asked me I was going to ask that one anyway. Gun Nation. Yeah. Well, but, we know, but, gun Nation is a good place to start because, you know, I guess, well, you can tell me, but it seems like that was almost your launchpad that project was that the first thing that really got uh, got you sort of started in terms of your career and people being aware of who you were yeah I guess in terms of um, what you might call success on a level that gets noticed it's not like I just did that project no you know I had been um, working as a documentary photographer yeah before doing Gun Nation and everything I'd done was vital to the success of Gun Nation because I'd gone through a whole process of covering, as I said, uh, countries that were sort of in some form of conflict. Um, And that included, you know, Somalia and Angola and Afghanistan. And so I'd gone through a, a process of thinking and understanding and in some ways also getting a bit cynical about world politics. 
So that paved the way for doing a project like Gun Nation. Um, and even the style that I photographed it in was informed by the work I'd done before. You know, I'd been shooting early on in this sort of black and white reportage, gritty, 35 mil. It was the way you were supposed to do documentary. And I'd kind of grown bored of it. You know, it felt like formulaic and a little bit sort of familiar. And you go and see an exhibition and everything. All the pictures were kind of the same and they conformed to a look. And I'm not dissing that look. I mean, it's just, there's brilliant pictures done in that way and there still are. And there's nothing wrong with it. But when you do anything too much people just get a bit too used to it so for instance with gun nation i remember thinking i don't want to just photograph foreign countries and make them all look like basket cases like a maybe that's not saving the world maybe that's not this kind of idealistic idea that i had maybe it's counterproductive you know so i had to wrestle with that idea and i'm still fighting that problem so then i thought i've got to think about the subject matter more thoughtfully and what I'm trying to do and then stylistically um, because I wanted to photograph America and the problems that guns were causing there uh, I sort of adopted different techniques like I made a lot of the portraits almost like family portraits you know I would light them and, and photograph them against a backdrop um, but they were on location they might be someone in a gun store but they had the um, visual language of a family portrait so you would read the images differently than if it was just a sort of grab shot in a gun show or something and then you know I would juxtapose images so then the design also became really important the way I would use text or juxtapose an image of you know the floor of a hospital after a gunshot victim had been brought in next to this kind of beautifully lit portrait of an elderly couple with her clutching her little handgun so the way you read the images would be mm. uh you'd have to, i would start trying to control that and uh, you know break up this kind of familiarity yeah um and using still lifes again sometimes lit carefully observed on a larger format camera and so now, obviously, things have changed massively since then. Now everyone goes to war with a large format 5.4 camera. It's almost become like a joke. Mm -mm. But then uh, it wasn't. No one did. There were a few people that had photographed on large format, you know, documentary work. But the idea of mixing it in a yeah. one project. Well, that's the um, thing I love about that project. And I think, yeah, I mean, I've always... It's always struck me that you know you, it, it was really quite a simple idea, but but I don't you know think as you say anyone had really done it. like you know you you made definite decision to, you know you shot in a in a in an ER you know where they have a lot of gunshot victims coming. You knew that that was going to provide you with a certain amount of good mm. material, and that it would show the show the result of this of what happens as you say what a gun does to you. But then as you say you mix that in with these quite formal portraits and then the still lives but i mean how did all how did the idea for doing that kind of come to you did it happen quite organically yeah i mean you know the background the things that got me there psychologically were the things i've already described mm. and then uh, you know feeling that this style of photography doing it in one certain way had sort of become a bit exhausted 
Um, I carried on, I shot it in black and white because I'd also, yeah, I'd noticed that we tend to go, well, back then certainly you'd shoot all the stuff in the developing world in black and white. Then you come back to your country and you'd do assignments for magazines. It was always in colour. Mm. That would be slightly more commercial work. And so it was like the West is in colour, that Africa is in black and white because, and, and that really works on people on a subconscious level. You know, they see these other places as war-torn, just ruinous, messed up places. So I wanted to shoot America in black and white so as not to give it that kind of sheen. Mm. Um, and, and at the same time, I remember thinking I must start photographing foreign you know developing countries in color in a different way too so i was trying to kind of turn it upside down but yeah the it wasn't an immediate strategy but it was just a a lot of things coalesced and i remember thinking quite clearly in fact the very first trip i went to america you know i took a nine foot backdrop Mm. Studio lights. So you're sort of drawing on, on you know, your I presume what was some kind of basic skills in terms of, you know, an editor, editorial photographer's kind of you know toolkit mm, is yeah. that you've got to be able to do a decent portrait, you know, lit portrait, but also you've got to be able to do the kind of reportagey stuff as well. So you're really just kind of drawing on all your different true skills. True. Yeah. I mean, if I can shoot a celebrity portrait of Dolly Parton and set up in an hour and shoot it, I thought, why don't I apply that to being in a police station in Memphis? Yeah. Um, and it really worked. And it framed this. But the other thing is, is that the, the approach to that subject matter, um, again, going back when that book was done, the, <clears throat> the American so-called gun problem was largely seen as a gang problem. And that meant young black men in America shooting each other. That's in the American mindset. It's like, oh, yeah, we've got a gun problem. And they would think it's them. So my point was, no, the gun problem is produced by the manufacturing industry, by the advertising industry who sells guns, and by the enormous number of you know, predominantly white middle-class Americans who buy these weapons in enormous numbers with no strict gun control laws. And then they have them stolen or they sell them or they sell them in classified ads with no checks. Um, and they trickle down. And yes... All right, the gang, the gang problem is certainly a problem, but it's just a little symptom Hmm. of the bigger issue. And so I also decided not to photograph gangs. Uh, And actually, in fact, I did. I couldn't resist it. The pull of the photographic cliche is so great. I found myself in Los Angeles meeting an ex-gang member who worked with gangs. And, you know, I did these pictures and they were quite evocative and... And I remember thinking, what am I doing? No, I'm, this isn't the This project. is the very thing I promised myself I yeah, wasn't Yeah, and I gonna... edited them all out. And if you look in the book, you know, there are no pictures of criminals and gangbangers mm. and all of that. Well, well, it was about white middle-class yeah, America. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and that's what makes them, I think, quite arresting, isn't it? That, that these are images of, in some cases, little old ladies, as you say, and um, guys with children. So that, that was in itself something that made it uh, immediately distinctive yeah like when it was published in america more importantly it pissed everyone off because that wasn't the 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 accepted narrative right 
it was too much like a mirror being held up to uh, a reality that was too uncomfortable. Mm. So, and that that's what made it successful to me. Mm. Mm. And I guess that's what. And I remember pitching it as an idea, and even at the time, and people at magazines were like, "Well, you know, we kind of we know the we've kind of got we've seen stuff on guns in America. It's like gangs mm. and." Mm that militia men in camouflage running around the forest with their guns. That's another popular one. Yeah. That makes good TV. Find a bunch of nutters who are in a sort of group, run around the forest with big, nasty-looking guns. I mean, it's a problem, and it's scary, and it's funny and very kind of visual. But again, I decided they were not key to the project. They were another just fringe element. Mm. Um, I wanted to find the so-called law-abiding Americans yeah. that they say are nothing to do with the gun problem. Yeah, and you know, you know, then, then there's that whole thing where um, you know some little five-year-old gets hold of the gun, and uh, you know that that's another way mm. that people get shot. You know, exactly. And uh, in the book, not, you know, yeah. I look at these statistics and try and kind of explode them really turn them upside down you know and there's images of people that have shot their own legs off in hunting mm. accidents um, industry of prosthetic feet for people that shoot their feet off with hunting rifles um, you know there's a whole catalogue of untruths that are told you know apparently it's seven times more well the, the pro-gun lobby say that you know you've got to own a gun to protect yourself and be safe but statistically if you have a gun at in your home you're seven times more likely to end up being shot. Mm. And that's played out in, you know, an intruder coming into your home and stealing your gun and using it against you. Or a domestic argument that gets out of hand and someone has a gun. Or a teenager, you know, accidentally shoots someone. So the idea that, you know, a gun in the home is going to give you safety is just <laughs> factually yeah. incorrect. incorrect. Yeah. So the project sort of exploded myth after myth. That was its aim. Yeah. And I mean, you talk about magazines, but I remember distinctly that, that GQ published a, a mm. huge spread of it. And, and I think even even then that was seemed to me pretty uh, unusual. Now it would be basically impossible. But how did that come about? Um, yeah, so that was that awkward, you know, that agonizing moment when you've just done a, you've finished a project and it's taken, you know, over two years and you yeah. sort of try not to add up how much it might have cost you. Yeah. Which we'll talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're sort of thinking, is anyone going to be interested in this? Or, you know, you really don't know. And, and how, how's anyone going to see it unless I, you know, persuade someone to yeah, publish it, right? Yeah. And anyway, so there was a, this great moment with GQ magazine had a new editor. And I knew that he'd just arrived and was trying to sort of, you know, make his point, you know, show he was going to be a good editor. So I went into him and said, look, I've just finished this big project, you know, but you can only run it if you give it 10 pages or more. Now, and it was a big gamble because I'd never <laughs> That's quite ballsy, dictated that, you yeah. know, ever. And I was, you know, reasonably young. And so I didn't feel like it, you know, I wasn't some ego, someone, someone with an inflated ego that they wheel out who can get their own way all the time. I was just like, fuck, I've got to make this work. And I said, 10 pages or less, that's it, take it or leave it. And he said, he looked at it and he was like, all right, we'll give it 16 pages with no ads in between, just page after page, which is really rare. Yeah, it's not astonishing. Not to have a feature broken up by ads. Yeah. And, um, 
And I said, oh, yeah, there's one more thing. You have to let, let me d- help design it as well. <laughs> with the, you know, I sit in with the designer the whole time. Right. And then they agreed that the art director then was Tony Chambers, who now is the editor of Wallpaper magazine. And he was a good, ed- a good designer. So we collaborated on the design and chose all the pictures and laid them out. And, and that meant it looked really good. Mm, it did look good, yeah. And, and that's another thing, you know, because the first magazine made it look good and big, all the other magazines thought, oh, it's good and it should be big. <laughs> and it, yeah. it kind of, it set it up. So, I mean, it was, it was published in the end over, I think, 180 pages, editorial magazine pages. Mm. Maybe more, actually, um, and so that was brilliant. It got really widely published, which helped recoup the cost of producing yeah, it. Yeah, because I presume you just paid for those trips yourself up to that, I mean, yeah. for the whole thing. Yeah. Did, you weren't getting a commission to go and do it or anything at the no. time. So you did manage to, yeah, recoup. Yeah, so financially it paid off. It, it you know, Put it was great because it won, it won awards. It won, like, well, first prize in World Press, Photo. Yeah. <clears throat> one of Visador at Perpignan, um, you know, I can't remember, uh, uh, Alfred Eisenstadt Award in New York. Yeah. So it kind of was recognised as a successful project. Mm. So those little things, I mean, they're important personally and for your own little ego and your career, but they're also important for uh, the way other people perceive the project. Yeah. Um well, yeah. you took a big gamble. I'm mean, just wondering, what, but where did you where did you get that level of kind of where did you get that level of sort of self confidence from? Was it a bit of a were you sort of bluffing to some extent when you when you make because not many people would take that risk or would yeah. even consider doing something like that? It'd be like oh, maybe. Please, can I have a few pages in your magazine? Oh, oh you mean that part? Yeah, the no, end part. Well, well that th- it was also born making... of desperation because yeah. you, know, you know that you have to now make this work right i mean doing the project uh i mean in actual fact you know it wasn't so bad cost-wise because it was all in one country Mm. and the cost of going to america spending 10 days there or two weeks i had to do it maybe five times it was kind of predictable you know Mm -hmm. you knew you could stay in a motel you knew how much a rental car was going to cost it was kind of not cheap but it was predictable and controllable so it cost a you know a fair bit but it wasn't you know ridiculous mm. actually doing love me my next book was more terrifying because love we took you all over the world right so that, yeah, was, that much... was like that was shot in 18 different wow. countries okay including england and and again did you have to fund everything yourself on that one or did, did you manage to sort of get you know commissions that helped helped you along the way so with that one um, I mean, the other problem with doing photography projects, I find, is that as soon as you've finished one, you can't remember how you did it anymore. <laughs> it, it's almost like your brain gets erased and you're just back to zero. Right. It's a really weird feeling. And people say, oh, you know, can you give me advice? And you think, not really, because I can't I remember how, how yeah. I did it. So it was just like that doing Love Me. And I remember thinking, all right, I'm starting this project. Um, it's even more kind of ambitious. It's going to be more expensive, a lot more. I've got to go to all these different countries. So I can't just do it and hope to recoup the money. So I approached that one differently and I thought, well, each place I go, I'll try and find 
a story worthy of you know that I can get a commission from a magazine mm. uh, it didn't always happen no in fact first of all I thought I'll do this project when I'm just doing other things if I'm traveling or if I get a job somewhere I'll then shoot some pictures right. and that will go towards this book and I did that for a year and it totally failed it was just like a joke um a, you know, it's not like I'm being sent all over the world all the time anyway, so you don't mm. get those opportunities. But B, when I was somewhere, you know, you're always busy. Yeah. And, and there's always a deadline and you're so tied up. And then, oh, you're going to come back and edit it and deliver the picture. So I realized that it simply didn't work like that. So then I had a strategy which was to get these magazines to commission me, sort of mini stories as I go along. Um, but the problem with that was that if you did it, if it was too widely published, you'd end up with a big project that had kind of effectively been, been seen, seen and published. Yeah. So that was a dilemma. So um, I decided to just find a commission for each country, but only publish it in that one magazine and then not try and sell it to any other magazines. And, and that's what I did. And that kind of worked. I mean, there were some places where I needed to go somewhere to photograph something, and it wasn't really a, like a story. It was just an image. So there was no way of getting a commission for it. Um, but that <clears throat> kind of helped fund the project. And, and you know, how did you kind of go about deciding what to shoot for that? Because it is, it is a slightly more nebulous mm. idea that you were trying to kind of get across. Yeah, yeah just a lot of research and thought and a sort of enormous list of ideas and possibilities and yeah um, well, obviously the idea of sur you know photographing surgeries or people who've had surgery that's that's one that yeah. is immediately obvious but you did all kinds of other stuff as well yeah i mean that's the thing um i think when i began the project as well uh i was more the project was more focused on the sort of extremes that we, the things humans do to themselves um, in pursuit of bodily improvement or perfection. And then something happened halfway through the project is that the TV, in certainly in England, suddenly got flooded with these kind of really shitty, cheaply made TV shows about plastic surgery right, makeovers. Yeah, yeah. I remember that. And I remember thinking, oh, God. Like, because before there'd been nothing, nothing about it on TV or anywhere. So to see these things was really interesting and extraordinary. But then suddenly it wasn't because it was all this sort of stuff on TV. And actually, I thought, oh, this has ruined the project. But actually, it was the, probably the best thing that happened because it made me take a more, um, slightly more thoughtful less sensational approach mm. and so it became less about extremes and more about the psychology of how we're affected by the industry and I started looking at more everyday things we do I mean a woman there's a photograph of a woman who's just having a bikini wax which is not having it in the picture but she's sitting there in a salon and this is a very normal mundane everyday event but in the project I wanted to show how we're all kind of inducted into this um, brainwashing sort of this world so the pictures I mean there are very extreme pictures as well there's I mean there is there's an image of someone having vaginal surgery and someone having leg lengthening surgery mm. that was the most extreme thing I saw they literally sever the bones in your leg mm. 
and then build an apparatus around and then they have to the sort of fuse to get it. well they kind yeah. of stretch your leg Ugh, apart yeah. while the bone is trying to reform so that's super extreme but the book certainly isn't just about extremes mm, mm. it's actually about this sort of tragic situation that we've arrived at where we have been conditioned to feel insecure you know vain yeah and advertisers of you know play on that always have done you know that's yeah. partly what they do right they exactly. exploit that feeling to sell you their shit you know their yeah wax strips or whatever which yeah. as you say is you know like a very everyday mundane thing but it's kind of the, the thin end of the wedge as it were exactly and then what what made the project i suppose more um well different than just a thing about the beauty industry was that it looked at how this kind of western ideal like the blonde haired blue eyed sort of western beauty ideal has been held up as the standard the norm that we must aspire to but then it's been packaged and sold all around the world very 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 effectively so you know i've got images in senegal where skin lightening is you know all the rage and hair straightening and hair lightening and all these different manifestations in China where people have surgery on their eyes and it's all in pursuit of more of a sort of Western look. Right, right. And then it gets quite dark and interesting and unpleasant because this Western beauty ideal, I mean, it's hard enough to conform to it in the West. You know, the, there's yeah. women have been told they have to be hairless and smell a certain way and have light and straightened hair largely caucasian you know ideal mm. yeah the lighter your skin the better basically yeah. is, is this is men, the message you know and men are the new target group as well <laughs> and i mean now finally i'm going to answer your question about what inspired me to do the project oh yeah well i'm not going to answer it but i'm going to at least address it because i don't think i have an answer but i think i'd noticed that men were being targeted and i mean there's an image of this guy christopher who's just had a chest wax in the book um and I realised that, yeah, the beauty industry, it was almost like, well, we've, we've, we've fucked women up. They're, mm. you know, they're buying our products. We've saturated the market. Right. There's a whole untapped market. There's an untapped market. It's just market. the other gender, you the know, other sex. In the 70s, men's role models were uh, sort of hell-raising, slightly paunchy, hairy footballers <laughs> yeah. who drank too much. Yeah. And it was completely uncool to use conditioner or to be seen to be doing anything to your body. In fact, you know, quite the opposite. You had to be seen to not give a shit. And in a period of a couple of decades, they've turned it round. So the role model footballer is David Beckham, a sort of hairless model. Yeah, so groomed to within an inch of his life. Yeah, uh, who is now advertising the conditioner that was hitherto banned for footballers. And there's an entirely different aesthetic. Mm. And men are, in America certainly, in high school shaving their chests routinely. And there's a, a booming industry in men's grooming and beautification mm. and plastic surgery. So I think I'd sense that happening. And that got me interested in it. Right, right. And maybe on my travels as well. I mean, I, the first story I did was in Iran, where I did a story about nose jobs, about the, I'd heard that there was a sort of booming industry in nose jobs in Tehran, and I was a bit like, really? You know, it sounds good, sounds like a good story. Is it 
True. True. Because also, you know, as a freelance you're really susceptible to reading little snippets and getting all excited and thinking that would be a great project or story. And then you kind of get there and it's some it's not freelance thought, journalist yeah. had egged it, had inflated it because yeah, they had to, to file a piece. And so I was thinking that well, this is going to be one of those. And um, I pitched it to a magazine and they were quite excited about it. And they said, yeah, it sounds brilliant. You know, the, the tagline was, there are more nose jobs being performed in Tehran than Beverly Hills mm. right now. And that was my pitch. And they were like, brilliant, go for it. And then, so I set the whole shoot up and then they called me and they're like, no, the editors changed their mind. They don't think it's, they don't think it's possible to do the story. Either they don't think it's going to work or it's not going to be possible because it's in Iran and you know, they can have all sorts of problems photographing it and with restrictions. And, you know, I put the phone down. I was like, fuck. You know, I pretty much prepared the trip. And I just lost my assignment. Um, and I, I decided just to just wing it. it and do mm. it. And it really worked out. It was one of those ones. And I really didn't think it was going to. And I remember arriving at the airport thinking, I'm fucked. You know. You, you were trying to manage your own expectations. Delusional, there. you know. Yeah. And... uh I I had one contact, which was a young sort of woman, like she was about 22 years old. And she was like the daughter of someone who someone knew. And she spoke really good English and she was going to be my helper. Mm. She wasn't like a professional fixer or anything, but she was just like a girl who had time. And I sat her down at the airport. We went for coffee and I was like, look, I'm... I said, look, I, we, I've told you roughly what this project's about, but can we just go over this? Because I'm quite worried about it. You know, do you know anyone who's had a nose job? And she looked at me and she's like, yeah, you know, my my mum's had one and my brother's going to have one and my best friend Shireen has had, hey, she's had two. <laughs> and I realised that you oh, know, great. it yeah. was going to be easy. Yeah. And it was. And in fact, that launched the project effectively even though i shot it in black and white and then changed my mind and decided that the project had to be in color so did you have some color stuff from that though yeah luckily i shot literally just a two or three rolls of medium format color alongside the whole project which was in black and white and that's all I used in right. the project. And did the magazine, did they use it in the end, the magazine that we're going to... No, because I sold it to another magazine for more money, oh, just to spite them. <laughs> that's for, good, for, yeah. You know, bailing yeah. on yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't, they didn't keep the faith. No, exactly. But originally you were sort of going down the sort of photojournalism route, it sounds to me, like your, your initial uh, early career was, was in sort of conflict zones and that kind of thing. Kind of. I mean, I was never like a proper news photographer. Mm. Even if I'd wanted to be, I I couldn't. I was too slow. I'd think about things too much. And I didn't know how to wire a picture in those days. You know, this was like pre... (laughs) I don't want to make myself sound old, but it was pre... You couldn't just email JPEGs. I mean, even now I shoot film anyway, 90% still. But, you know, people, those newsy type people would they develop their film in the bathroom of a hotel room and then mm. and then snip the negative out 
that they wanted without even making a contact sheet, which I could never do either. I could never choose a picture from the negative. Mm. I didn't understand how people did that. No, I've never really understood. I, had to I get a contact sheet. Yeah, and some spend people about a week. claim that you can. Yeah, and I suppose to some extent you can if you have to. But yeah, it's it's, it's no. difficult. No way, I, I couldn't do that. And even if I could, then you have to have some portable scanner and mm. get a connection. Yeah. So all of that never interested but me. But I suppose there's, there is also alongside that a strain of photojournalists who are more maybe shooting for magazines where there's no, there's not such a deadline that, you know, it would it'd be True. the same sort of style, but they've got more time and yeah, it yeah, probably would course. have fitted into that category. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, that's the thing. I, so I, I wasn't, I knew I wasn't a newsy person or a, a photojournalist that was, could respond to things. Plus, also, I didn't want to ever go anywhere where there was a pack of news people. I didn't, I didn't understand why you would bother. Mm. Uh, you know, my often, uh, well, always, the things I was interested in were, why is this being ignored? Why is there a famine in Somalia and no one's there? No one's talking about it. That was the first kind of very serious project I did. And they really, when I say no one was there, like no one at all. There weren't any other news media. And then there was you know, like a journalist from the independent newspaper. And, you know, that was the first experience I had. Um, and I would send film back by FedEx and it would get published in magazines. And so that was like a sort of taste of doing something serious that felt like it really mattered. There was a sort of unfolding event um, but yeah, it, that was as far as I went in that Mm-mm. way, and it was all I tended to work for magazines with a lot longer sort of time scale. Um, but you know, it, money was always a problem as well. There was never people complain about now, but I, there were, as far as I've been alive, there was never like this amazing good old days of enormous money for foreign documentary work. Mm. Yeah, you'd be is, it is harder. Than lucky, now, I think. yeah. In terms of how you kind of managed to balance this whole, you know, difficult business of, on the one hand, doing personal work, on the other hand, paying the bills. I mean, how, mm. do you find that you can, you, you've got a kind of good balance or, you know, I guess it can always be better. But have you kind of had to consciously keep an eye on how that is over the years? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, everyone does it differently. You know, some people just have no money and they're bitter and twisted and you know you can go the bitter twisted photojournalist route or you can go the commercial doing commercial work and then realizing it's all a bit too tempting and realizing you haven't taken an interesting picture for three years right right yeah and then you're richer but feel like you're creatively (laughs) creatively uh, stifled yeah there's that route (laughs) so I, i i kind of didn't I didn't find either of those attractive. Right. So I tried and have continued to try and find a way that photography produces enough money to live and do projects. And then I've always just used the money for personal work. For mm. Well, personal work, what does that even mean? You know, like long-term projects. Right, yeah. Um, that I believe in or want to do. Mm. I mean, I'm not even sure they're spec. I mean, they are speculative. Well, in, in the terms sense that you never really know whether you're going to recoup the cost no. or whether you're going to make any money. So you're taking a punt in a way. True, and but they're kind of essentially there's something you want to do, mm. and no one's necessarily commissioning you to do it. No one's going to ring up and say, "Oh, can you do a book and spend four years 
doing it. I mean, I'd love it if they did. Yeah. Um, but it hasn't happened. No one's yet. ever. I don't think anyone's ever done that. So or said that. So you have to finance that kind of way of life, if you want yeah. to call it that. And so early on, I would do some commercial work or kind of corporate work and use that money always for producing interesting work. Mm. And and that worked really well. Um, I do remember one period in my life where I'd started getting more commercial work and I suddenly realised that I hadn't taken any... I hadn't worked on any interesting projects for myself for two years. And it was like, oh my God, I'm becoming person B mm. and I stopped it and kind of went back and um, that's quite a difficult thing to do because it's very hard to turn that you know when you're getting a, when you're on the gravy train as it yeah. were it's hard to just it's really hard you have to be very, very disciplined hard. to turn that down yeah i don't know that many people who have that problem which is like i'm i've got so much commercial work that i just haven't got time to do my own thing i suppose there are there a few are people, people like who that. are successful yeah. commercial photographers i yeah. think there actually are probably quite, quite a, few a few of them yeah but they all complain, oh, you know, it's good. Oh, look, you do this, and, you know, I wish I could do that. And they, they sort of, they complain. Mm. And they say, you know, I wish I could do this, or, you know. And, of course, they could, but they, yeah, they, don't they are addicted to. Uh, and let's face it, you know, it's very hard to turn down a well-paid assignment. Yeah, too And right. so if you set yourself up to be that person, my God, it's going to be hard reversing it. Yeah, exactly. And I have... I think I've sort of tiptoed between those two worlds and now I've gone much more hardcore sort of I'm not doing commercial stuff. Mm. Um, but again, I've gone too far the other way now. I've gone too far towards category A, <laughs> <laughs> the bitter and twisted. Right. Uh, no, I mean, basically I thought a few years ago, I thought I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to just not do any commercial work. I'm going to just make it sustainable doing documentary maybe portraits so you could do editorial if you get commissioned to do editorial stuff yeah. that's fine yeah that's fine i don't classify that as commercial no, because no. it's so badly paid yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> so even that feels um i mean it, it is commercial isn't it but it's not well you're not, not yeah, selling a, a product you're category. essentially it's a it's a portrait of someone real or a story about something mm. and actually those are two things i love doing and also I've heard people say, you know, I think Phil Toledano said that, you know, some people are a bit funny about, you know, having to do, you know, sort of sort of lower themselves to uh, do editorial, right. work, partly because it's so badly paid and all that. But, you know, it actually can be a source of great ideas and great, mm. you know, you can, it can be the point at which, you know, you can, you can end up doing personal work which comes out of, you know, a very simple commission. I think it's true. Um, and even if it doesn't come out of the commission itself, it comes out of, I don't know, being on an aeroplane, reading an airline magazine right. on the way to do yeah. something you might not even really want to do. Just being in the world kind of thing. But and, it and does, you know. And so I had a phase where I would, you know, when the magazines started cutting their day rates and haggling over expenses really badly, I just thought, what happened to me is that I I played the game and then I kind of, you know, you lower it a bit and you're a bit tighter on the expenses and you're more frugal on a shoot. And you, so you don't take the piss at all mm. and you're more, yeah, just more careful. 
and and maybe you know you think oh but you know you might have got paid more a few years ago and now it's less really and so you would go down and then it reached a point I was like I'm not going below that are you serious and then so then I just stopped because I'd get called up and they'd go no that fee's just too low and they'd be haggling over silly things on the expenses and you'd be like that's just silly you know that's not even that's just dumb or uh, I'm not retouching it all for free Mm, that's that's a killer because they're just used to everyone doing all the post-production for yeah. nothing. No, that's mad. Because that's just as time-consuming. In their little as... bedrooms. And so yeah. I'd be like, no, you know, each, uh, you know, t- to scan an image and retouch it costs this much. Or to, if it's a digital image, you know, basic retouch fee, either per, you know, whatever. And they'd be like, no, we don't pay for that. And I'd be like, well, yeah, but I don't do it for free. Mm. You know, and you'd end up with these weird sort of silences standoff <laughs> in a conversation and and slowly these picture editors were being put under so much pressure from above that you couldn't win the argument with them anymore because it wasn't you weren't arguing with them you were arguing with with their superiors, their superiors mm. and they were worried about their little jobs and mm. and and they had a budget given to them mm. so then it got quite serious and so then I was like okay I've reached the my minimum here so I would turn jobs down um, and then, you know, I kind of, there was a point where I thought, oh, actually, I kind of miss doing these, these jobs. And as you say, you know, you do, it, it keeps your mind looking and thinking and stuff like that. So it's a hard thing, you know, mm, it's a mm. hard balance to, yeah. to get. Um, and then not doing commercial work was like lovely. I just thought, oh God, yeah, not doing any more, you know, commercial work. I'm a purist. But the problem with that is that um, when you've got money coming in that felt kind of not easy money, you know, you just think, well, that was pretty well paid and I'm going to blow that Mm. on this project. It's quite easy to do, I find. Mm. But when you've really earned the money painstakingly, you get more cautious. And actually the one thing you don't want to be when you're doing a personal project is too cautious because you never do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were talking about that at the beginning before we started recording. Yeah. But um, you need a mindset of <laughs> kind of wild abandon or naivety or... Uh, yeah, you uh, were making the point that you, you don't think it's a good idea to think too much about how much stuff's going to cost you to do because that would just stop you from doing it. Yeah, you know, I always had this policy of like not adding up how much it was costing. mm and then one day I mentioned to you, I did, and it was a huge mistake to pre-cost what I thought my next project would cost. Yeah. And it was, um, I was, I just thought, it sort of stopped me in my tracks. You know, if you're going to go to 15 countries, you know, international flight, and you add it all up, it gets crazy. Yeah. So... But somehow when you do it slowly over a period of, like Love Me took five years to do, only because I had to fund it as I went along. Mm. 
um, and well, somehow, five years, that's not even bad for, for something that involved going to 18 different countries or true, something. It doesn't you know, sound that bad. No, it's, it's not, you know, I mean, you could easily spend you spend twice that doing something on your doors. I mean, there are different true. reasons for a project taking the amount of time that it takes. Especially because for the first year and a half, I only pretended I was doing the project. You know, that, <laughs> that other phenomenon where you you think, oh, I'm doing, a, I'm doing a project, but you never quite get around to right. doing it. Mm. So I went through that period and then you start doing it. And then there's a thing at the end, what happens where you have been doing it a lot, but you can't stop because you don't know, you don't know how to know when it's finished. Well, Gus, yeah, talk about opposite question. I mean, I, you know, how do you know when, when it's finished? Because I'm trying to answer that question for myself. What's your take on, on that? Is it, is it an instinctive <clears throat> thing? Yeah, it really depends, I think, on the project. Like with Gun Nation... That was easy because I'd been, I only did it for, well, it was kind of over nearly a three year, but mainly over a two year period with some added stuff. But um, I just found myself getting so angry about the subject because by then I was like an expert on the whole issue. So at the beginning, I was this kind of slightly naive person asking questions, trying to understand it. And I needed to appear like that to people as well so they didn't feel threatened but after two years I had a lot of opinions and Mm. I was beginning to get very frustrated with other people's opinions and how the situation wouldn't change so I was getting more argumentative and frustrated and so I thought actually I think I've reached a natural conclusion I need to get the work out Mm. and I I did feel in photographically I kind of looked at it and I thought actually I think I have all the elements nailed kind of this now yeah. and then the, at the end there was a, a high school shooting I'd officially finished the project and then the Columbine high school shooting happened and I got a call from someone and they were like have you seen the news and I said no it was like in, you know, 11 at night and he said yeah turn the TV on there's been like a big shooting in America and I was watching it and he said this guy worked at an agency and he said in fact, it was John Easterby at IPG Agency, who I, you know, I was with them at the time. Mm. And he's like, look, you need to, I think you need to go there. And I remember thinking, oh, no, I really don't want to. You know, I, I've finished the project. I'm done with it. And I definitely, it was really, it was late at night. It was like a Friday night. I think I'd been out to the pub. I'd had a couple of pints. And I was feeling all woozy and <laughs> looking forward to the weekend. And he's like, I think you need to I think you need to go there and I'd never like I said I'd never been a news photographer so I would never just go somewhere I was like how do you do that how do you just go somewhere the next day you know what I mean (laughs) and I remember thinking all these things and then kind of really reluctantly going and looking at flights and Mm. uh, I did fly there the next day on your own dime right because it was a sort of again yeah there wasn't any time to even but you try did, and get a commission. But you did and that. That did go go in the project in the end. Uh, yeah, it those, did. And you, uh, it was it almost did. like a full stop at the end of. No, it was quite important because yeah. it was. Again, the high school shootings weren't getting. Now they're getting a lot of attention. Then they were kind of ignored. Mm. I mean, they would be talked about when they happened, but no one was seeing it as this kind of ongoing repetition, this phenomena that was happening. So. And it also, partly because it didn't fit the narrative, these were generally white 
middle-class boys that were going to school with semi-automatic rifles and killing 14 of their classmates. Mm. It didn't fit the narrative in America of the gun problem. That had to be young black men shooting each other. Mm. And it in had to be crime kind of or, yeah, or yeah. crime and, uh, or carjacking or right, right. You know, horrible gun you know, robbery at gunpoint. So that was like them and us. So for some reason, the, the, the school shootings, it was kind of a bit awkward. So it didn't really enter the discourse. So when the Columbine shooting happened, it was the biggest high school shooting yeah. then. It's been obviously massively superseded by other bigger events. But for me, it was important to go. And so I arrived and it was kind of almost comical, actually, because unprepared as I was I got on a plane you know in London flew to Colorado so it was in Littleton Colorado and I forgot to look at the weather you know in Colorado like I just thought well it's America it's kind of not that bad but (laughs) it was freezing and there was like deep snow um you know like arctic temperatures and I had a thin black raincoat and no gloves you know i was like so poorly prepared and all the american media were there and they all had these great big duck down puffer jackets you know like north face gear with gloves and i always noticed they had water bottles on their belts and you know like satellite feed trucks you know they're really like the proper organized yeah organized and and often on commission as well yeah and you're there as this sort of freelance in a raincoat it was a bit pathetic really shivering I remember going to a camping store and buying gloves and then the ne- and then realizing to my horror as I read the newspapers as as the news was d- emerging that the two killers the two boys who went to school and shot shot all the other kids had been wearing long black trench coats and that they were be- they'd been dubbed the trench coat mafia because mm. no one wants to talk about two middle-class white boys who buy a gun and shoot everyone. They have to make them into a, a gang or a mafia or something. So they were called the trench coat mafia. And I was wearing a long black coat, not dissimilar, which was very awkward. So then I had to ditch that and you know get, get mm. another jacket. Uh, but, but really tragically, over the following days, you know what I realised, what they did is they banned black trench coats from mm. schools in the whole of Colorado for school kids. They didn't ban guns. Um, they didn't tighten the gun laws. Just ban the coat. They banned black coats because yeah. you can hide guns under them, as these boys did when they went to school. And so, you know, and, and all the churches had signs, obligatory signs outside them that said, pray for healing and where did we go wrong? And, you know, it was a really frustrating time and very bleak and depressing to be there and realise that even in the context of what had just happened, no one was going to do anything or debate gun laws, that it would be, where did we go wrong, looking at religion, and we should, you know, we've turned away from religion in schools, um, they blamed video games, uh, trench coats, you know, the usual litany of things, but no one talked about guns. Hmm. And that, at least now, even though the statistics are just as bad, at least there is a. a well, you went back, didn't you, and made a little film? To, you know, you re- revisited some of the same 
characters that you'd come. Oh across. yeah, recently. Yeah, very so recently. It was probably the twentieth anniversary, I imagine. Well, it isn't this year? Maybe it's exactly. The yeah, and over the years, people had always said, "Oh, you ought to go back and you know yeah. do more on that project." And yeah. I, I, I always said, "Actually, there's nothing more to add. It hasn't. It's got worse, not better." Mm. And but, but the interesting thing w- was, and and is what you did was to find some of the same characters. Yeah. So and suddenly you know, it made sense. Yeah. Like after people said, "Oh, you ought to do more about you know guns in America," and I always thought, "I got nothing to add." You yeah. Know, and nothing's changed really. Nothing's changed. So I'd just be repeating old ground, and then suddenly I realised that I could that that was the point that I wanted to go back and show that in nearly 20 years nothing had changed it actually got worse and that i could go and track down the characters in the original project and ask them you if know, they changed any opinions and or why why not after all these you know i worked out that half a million people had been shot and killed in america since that my first trip so i wanted to go back and say to people you've lost half a million more humans that doesn't account for the five times as many injured. Uh, are you still fine about that? Or is there any now argument mm. to tighten gun laws? So the film, which I did for the Guardian newspaper, um, became, it was a 30-minute documentary about going back, revisiting, finding the people, asking these questions, and sort of partly debating and arguing with them as well, mm. um, and asking why change is so difficult and had did any of them stick to their guns if you pardon the <laughs> yeah pun. but this was this is the issue because it, it's all about sort of cultural brainwashing and how people mm. how entrenched people are in their views well also yeah yeah this is this is really kind of timely because i think it's the same with let's say you know your average trump supporter or something or your average Brexiter, if, mm. you, if we're talking about the British kind of equivalent. If you're wedded to a really shitty idea, it takes a lot of kind of intellectual honesty to go, actually, you know what, I'm mm. going to reverse my position on that. What people tend to do for whatever reason is double down right. on their commitment and go, no, I'm fucking, I'm all in. I'm still, right. I still think Trump's awesome and yeah. Brexit a great idea and let's have as many fucking guns as possible. You know, it seems to me that's the kind of human nature there. It's really, really hard, especially when you're dealing with people, you know, as you are in the aforementioned instances, you know, who are not necessarily massively well-educated, to put mm. it, you know, in its kind of most diplomatic terms. True. Although, you know, as I said, a lot of the people that I went looking for on that first foray in America were, you know, degree educated Americans. Right. So I wasn't there you looking go. So you've for already, redneck America. You've already blown up my preconceived, you know, idea of, uh, well, of the kind of. Or maybe not. Maybe I've just proved that you can still have a degree. <laughs> you can have a degree standard and education and still, still be mm. very locked into an idea. Uh, and also, you know, importantly, while there's an enormous lobby group industry working to um, propagate ideas, and this is what's happened in America with gun culture, you know, it didn't just happen by mistake. It was developed from, you know, 18 
60 onwards by an, an advertising industry who literally invented the myth of the Wild West and the, the gun's place in it, calling guns like peacekeepers and, you know, the, the equaliser and mm. the idea of the cowboy and the lone cowboy. And um, it was largely an invention of of advertising agencies in North America who were nowhere near the Wild West. And they created this myth and then they sold it to, they targeted young boys and their fathers and they said, you know, you need to buy your son a Winchester repeat action rifle because no 12-year-old mm. can get through life without that man-to-man, you know, man father-to-son bond and learning to shoot and it's a great... And it's how the West was won and all that. And it's that how the West of... was won and it's patriotism and, you know, all of this stuff. And it was, it really was uh, made up. And actually in the Wild West people did have guns, but people had sort of single um, hand, handmade pieces. They weren't mass produced. They were seen as a tool. Um, there was no, not much attached to them. Mm. But this idea of, you know, this patriotic, icon of americana you know was invented and so you had that and then boys were the target industry for advertisers and then the mass production came into effect um where you got you know literally the technology to mass produce things was invented and guns was the first one of the first items that was mass produced and then these factories uh, they would get enormous orders from the US government and foreign governments for guns to fight wars and skirmishes. But then they realised that between wars and skirmishes, the orders would completely stop and they would have these enormous factories um, with an enormous workforce producing guns, but no one to sell them to. And so what they did, like cynically and systematically, was was build... Uh, a domestic market for guns they had to find people to buy guns in vast numbers so they began an enormous campaign that took decades mm. to, to take root until this is really have... interesting has anyone written a book about this because you should probably do that if, uh, well, if no one has there are there are there are books on it and partly that's why i know about it because mm. i've read i'm looking now but i read a couple mm. that really talk about this um so the book exists i'm trying to remember which one i last read but do you enjoy that kind of uh research phase of things is that part as part of the appeal to you yeah i guess yeah. um although you seem obviously you're clearly very knowledgeable about this it's something that's you know it's 20, 20 years of uh you know of of, of staying interested yeah. in, in the topic but i'm just wondering if that you know clearly that's always part of your process yeah, sometimes it's retrospective and you learn things that you should have known then. Right, yeah. Like sometimes it's just a feeling. You, you're driven to do a project, but you're learning. I mean, that's the other thing. I like doing things that I want to know about. Mm. I'm not an expert in, when I did Love Me, I wasn't an expert in the, the insidious power of the global beauty industry. I just knew that something big was happening, that humans were being um, brainwashed or coerced into a certain you know we 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 we're being conditioned to fear aging you know the the industry sells the idea that aging is a thing of shame it's like a disease they've actually kind of badged 
the idea of aging has been sold to us as a, as a disease that must be cured mm. and it can be cured or at least lessened with products or surgery or you know creams and so it's not just oh here's how to make you look better it's you have to make someone unhappy in order to sell them a cure so the gun industry industry have helped make people feel scared and insecure with their advertising campaigns in order to sell them a cure which is a gun or they've told fathers you're not you're not an adequate father if you're not shooting with your son mm. or protecting your family or with protecting a gun. your family or your wife mm. and then they've worked on women and there's advertising campaigns showing women walking across parking lots at night and it's saying if you don't have your little holstered walter ppk you're going to be dragged into a dark bush mm. and you know god knows what um but all the while arming people in this way is why it's so dangerous yeah, no one makes the connection no. you know if you make the guns so available of course you live in an insecure world mm. so yeah these you know you have to, i'm interested in researching subjects just because they're these like phenomenons yeah the other thing that i wanted to ask you about is um in this land because you went and did some stuff in israel mm. and, and the occupied territories you know i guess that was in the same spirit of um of discovery in a way was that what what got you sort of interested in 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 that subject yeah that really was um it, i had this feeling that it was actually the last place i wanted to go and i realized that i'd never been to israel or palestine um and that it was this place that was the source of so much pain and drama and upset. Um, and it was constantly in the news and all these images of misery and anger and stone throwing and oppression. You know what I mean? And um, I just, I realised I didn't want to go there. And also one of those things that just seems to be an, an intractable problem yeah. has been with us for you know as long as anyone well since you know 48 or, or should we say or certainly probably before that as well but yeah in, in anyone's living memory yeah and so I had this feeling but I also had a feeling that um it wasn't going away and also that it was really important you know this sense that if there's going to be a third world war it was likely going to start over an issue like that or in a place like that um I mean, now it's shifted a bit and now we're all worried about Trump and Russia and mm. Syria. And, you know, there's, there's this constantly evolving new threats and problems. But when I did the Israel book, um, there was a strong sense of, uh, you know, something really bad could happen over this conflict. Very, very divisive. And in the end, I just thought, I kind of want... And also, I didn't understand what was going on and why and i i thought i just want to go and try and understand it and um that's it you know understand it so i went and i pitched it to a magazine in fact to go around the entire border of the country um and sort of go around the circumference of the country and just um to show this kind of nation of extremes and diversity um and it was a way of just getting me there and traveling around it mm. 
Um, so that was a really good learning curve trip. And then I went back and shot more. Um, but it was from the beginning to the end, it was really difficult mm-hmm. because of the subject. I mean, you were trying to avoid the, the usual cliches, I presume, yeah, in terms of the stuff that we've all seen a lot of from that region. Yeah, which is really hard because every time you raise your camera to your eye and take a picture, you think, no, this is <laughs> yeah. that or I've seen this and what does this reveal? And I'll, after a while, after my first trip, I had this kind of uh, I, like naive idea that I was going to do a project that explained it all and made sense of it and cured, immediately cured the problem. Mm. I didn't, I would never have said that out loud. Uh, but maybe subconsciously, this is what I was hoping to do. And I realized very quickly how stupid and absurd that was. Um, but it was very interesting and revealing. And, you know, I thought I don't want to photograph Palestinians throwing stones and, that kind of immediate flashpoints of mm. anger because again it just fuels this non-stop kind of litany of images it doesn't really reveal anything uh, so after my second trip I realized I'd pretty much failed and then I ended up as a sort of desperate bid to because I realized that the photographically it was a failure unless you knew what was going on the history that, that a, any single image or any collection of images couldn't do justice to what was happening and couldn't explain it. So I ended up photographing a series of images of stones, of rocks, taken from key places around Israel and Palestine. And they were, I mean, they were photographed on a 5-4 camera, sort of, you know, in such a way that, the image m- might be visually somehow interesting or attractive to look at, but that the caption that would accompany the image was a story about the, where that that place. So, you know, I picked up a tiny stone from the spot where Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated. So he was the Israeli prime minister. And it talked about, so this extended caption talked about why he was assassinated by a kind of ultra right-wing Jewish zealot who was angry that he was um, talking about making some concessions with the Palestinians. Then I photographed a stone that was taken from the site of an atrocity committed by the Israeli armed forces, you know, in the breakup of that country. Mm. And then another rock from the Dolphinarium suicide bombing where a young Palestinian man blew himself up, surrounded by young Israeli party goers in a nightclub. And so each of these images carried with them a written story. And maybe there were only eight. I mean, there were more, but the, the final edit was about eight. And if you read each of those captions, actually, you started to have quite a thought provoking idea about what was happening in this sort of cycle of violence and, um, how it all kind of began. Mm. Um, you could argue it was a photographic failure because you know it resorted to text. But well, I've you never... used it as a sort of device, really, mm. by which you could 
an excuse in a way to use the the, the captions. I think it's yeah. an interesting idea. But you don't you feel like it was? <laughs> no, I don't really think it was a failure. I mean, if someone's a purist and they they believe that a picture's worth a thousand words, and you can't have if you need a caption, then it's not a proper photograph, mm. which to me is a totally old-fashioned and not even old-fashioned. It's just not an interesting idea. I've always loved mm. text and I love photographs and I think they work well together. And Yeah, I think that's fundamentally just wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, why limit yourself? And now I'm, I make films now because some things really work as a film yeah. with audio and sound. But you know or you mix it all up or whatever so it wasn't a failure to me but um and did you find that did you feel that you kind of came through that experience with a much greater understanding then at least of what of what you know i certainly did personally whether i actually informed anyone else i don't know (laughs) even now i dread talking about it in the lecture it it did become a book because i was i was a bit unclear of uh, whether it ever saw the light of day as a book yeah i got as far as a book dummy a very it was always going to be a kind of small print run book. Right. And the the publisher or the printer completely fucked it up. Um, so you were going to do it yourself, essentially? Well, or, or you- I had an exhibition at Nordelicht in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And so we were going to print a small print run of books that would go with the exhibition. Right. Uh, kind of accompany the exhibition. So maybe only a print run of maximum 500, I think. Mm. Um, Which is actually, for a photo book, kind of... Kind of a healthy fairly, number. Yeah, yeah, a reasonable number. I mean, at the time I was even thinking of like 200, between two and 500. Because I didn't really want to... I've never self-published a book. And I always dreaded just the kind of sheer work you have to do to mm. kind of even just to send copies to people yeah. <laughs> it's a full-time yeah, job yeah. so i didn't want to do that but it, it made sense to have uh, a number of books that would go with a traveling exhibition that was appealing so the book was designed uh, proofed and then they completely fucked it up the guy had some form of nervous breakdown mm-hmm. um yeah changed things got things wrong uh so now it's a very limited edition book of about 20 copies currently and i always meant i mean you know i was i was going to reprint it i mean i was not reprint it but print Print it it, uh and i got distracted in making a film about migrants crossing the mediterranean before that all became a big story Mm. and then you know that book where you know seven or so very very good photographers all responding to israel was published and it was like thomas struth was one of the photographers Mm. um uh kadelka right it was like a kind of kind of a-listers yeah a a comedy joke list of names (laughs) you know what i mean Yeah, yeah who were all in israel on uh, backed by this and foundation very wealthy foundation on getting all expenses paid and very well paid to do it this group of photographers and i knew that this was in the pipeline and um and i knew that that was underway and there came a certain point i thought you know what i think i'm gonna i i kind of didn't want to publish the book 
I, originally my one was going to be published a year before or so and then I, as it got later I just thought I'm just going to carry on doing work on it mm. and take my time so that was a good example of you know you think with that many great photographers working on one book that that subject is going to get a lot of that book and that subject is going to get, get a lot of attention. attention and I don't want to be trying to publish a book on the same subject at the same time um, I mean that wasn't you know to be honest that wasn't the main reason it was just something that was happening um but it was more just you know when you put that much energy into a book for an exhibition and then it it just didn't arrive on the yeah. day uh, it just goes to show that you know you are you're at the mercy sometimes you're at the mercy of, of fate you know and, yeah. and other people and and that's that's the argument for actually doing it yourself you know because although the downside as you say is that there's a lot of work and um it can be a real pain because yeah. you've got you are basically obliged to do everything at least you're, you've got that element of control which yeah. if you cede that control to someone else you never know what's going to happen someone could like, you know, like say have a <laughs> nervous breakdown at the wrong moment no it's true um and actually, I've got some copies of the book, and now I look back on it, I think actually it wasn't that bad. You mm. know, it could have, it would have been good enough, mm. but um, it wasn't the book that had been signed off and planned. So, so now it's. Um, I think I'd probably continue working on the subject a bit more, and then think about republishing right. it. You know, later. And this thing with doing the video, which you you now have started doing i guess fairly regularly mm. and and you've you've already talked about it and we've we've talked about it what do you see yourself doing more of that because your your other project that we haven't talked about is your hackney book yeah um hackney being this region of london in which we are sitting and um where we both live and um you did a book with hoxton mini press on that subject but you're you're now making a film to sort of follow up from mm. that is that is that yeah, basically yeah. What's happening? which focuses on one street in Hackney. oh really yeah how did you come to the idea of focusing on one street then well i did the hackney book yeah uh which actually was the opposite of the israel book that was like a brilliantly simple story yeah where i'd shot i'd photographed the project for no apparent reason other than after doing Love Me, I didn't want to get on any more aeroplanes. I wanted to be more local. You wanted to explore your own backyard, as it were. Quite where literally, You grew up yeah. in Hackney, in fact. Yeah. And I wanted to actually remind myself about just the joy of wandering the streets and taking pictures. Kind of revert to student mode, really. Mm. And, you know, not be too political, not be doing any international travel. Um, just do something simple. And kind of enjoy it as well. So I started doing it on that basis with no aim, no end game. I didn't even think of it at all as a book or even as a magazine piece or anything. I just, it was just a project. Um, and, and that made it quite fun to do. And then um, I kind of accumulated quite a nice body of work. And then Hoxton Mini Press um, approached me and said, you know, have you thought of doing a book? And I said, no, not really, you know. And they're like, well, we'll do it. And I'd already edited the images, you know, 50 images in a sequence. And I just said, well, here it is then. Yeah. Give them all a one centimetre white border. Yeah, and that was it. <laughs> and do it. Instant it, book. And it was just really simple and really nice. Kind of a match made in heaven, yeah. And it's a small book, as all of their books are. 
and it's not too expensive so um it's not it's not pretentious or trying to be more than it is mm. the other thing you know that sort of those enormous coffee table books they were beginning to feel a bit obscene mm. you know what i mean mm. and it was quite appealing to have something that was more immediate yeah and affordable to people yeah yeah i mean and martin osborne was you know was on the podcast a couple of couple of weeks ago so you know if the listeners haven't heard martin speak they should they should check that one out because martin's the publisher of huxton mini press and he and he talked you know he, he does talk very sort of uh, eloquently and, and at length about his kind of ethos or their mm. ethos there which is which is very sort of unapologetically populist in right. that sense they want to sell bloody books to people you know as he put it you know it, these books with nothing on the cover you know of, made of the remotest japanese paper right. all, all very well we all we all love that stuff yeah. you know the kind of fetishization of the photo book but you know if only 20 photographers are going to see it you know so yeah. there, there's that side of it the hackney books has been very popular it's sort of third edition or something <laughs> that's else. true yeah, I mean, that's and it's a, not just being bought by people here in London who know Hackney, presumably. Yeah. You know, it must have some kind of universal appeal. I guess. I mean, yeah. It does. I mean, three editions, and the third edition has just sold out as mm. well. So part of me is pleased about that, and then I started having this nagging worry because obviously during the during the doing of the project, I was trying to give myself a break and stop being so political and thinking, overthinking everything. I just thought, just be a flaneur and wander the streets and mm. respond. And, you know, this is going to be a sort of love poem to the area I grew up in, in all its shabby grubbiness, you know what I mean? Mm. But then, of course, me being me, I started getting interested in gentrification and what that meant and polarisation of society and rich and poor and these hipsters inhabiting the same space as people living in poverty. Now, that's not really in the book. Um, there are hints of the hipsterization of Hackney. I mean, that certainly is shown in the book. Mm. Um, the, you know, gentrification to some degree. But it's not at all heavily rammed down your throat. Mm. There's just nods towards it. The film I'm now making is much more... Lit- I mean, it's literally about gentrification and change. So that's responding to the things that I started thinking about doing the book but then of course the book being such a uh, sort of successful seller I've started thinking it's being co-opted by the forces of gentrification (laughs) it's beginning you know you think you're doing something that's a bit critical or a kind of wry look at something Mm. and then suddenly you think maybe it is a hipster book that's being you know this is that thing where you know you can't you're not you have no control over the way that people receive something. You know, all you can really do is put it out into the world and then yeah, you're never quite sure how, you know, people interpret it. So you've chosen one street because why? It's it's an example of how yeah, how the, the, the face of the of the place has changed so dramatically. Yeah, basically. I mean I, yeah, if one street because I thought A you can document change as it literally happens. So that's an interesting kind of filmic device which you can do probably better on film than in still photography. And, and I, again, I started that film without that much thought. Mm. I just thought one day I might just start doing that and see where it goes. And then there's something appealing about focusing on one small area um, and documenting it over 
a period of time. So, you know, change happens before your very eyes. Mm. If I've done that with a family, I photograph a family every year and I've done oh, it for 24 years. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because oh, I, I really wanted to talk about that, actually. Right. No, because, it, it, you know, I suppose, you know, it's sort of, it's one of those things that you could kind of almost see as a sort of little side project yeah. almost. But I think it's one of the most poignant things that you've ever done really even though it's just this what literally this one thing a year yeah and by virtue of doing it for such a a long period of time you end up with this incredible document of the passage of time mm. and of aging and yeah i'm really i'm really glad you brought it up and you're still doing it still doing it we just did the last portrait at christmas oh really um because i was looking at it because i don't think you've I don't know how far it goes on your website. I think it oh, only yeah. goes up to 2015 or something. Well, I'm so bad at updating my yeah. website that I get like emails from people going, "I'm so sad you've stopped doing the project." Right, you right. know, what happened? Well, the kid right. is the kid is uh, the kid who's now yeah. 26 or whatever is um it looks about 6 foot 4 or something. So <laughs> yeah. you're quite in a way you're quite fortunate that he happens to have turned into a big a big giant of a guy. Well, he's just a big guy True. generally. Yeah, but he clearly he's stopped growing but of course, the aging process continues. And, and, uh, yeah, but that's the thing you see. What happened with that project is I started, I photographed these, this couple. She was nine months pregnant. She was the wife of a friend who I'd met, you know, previously. And I was just like a young, just out of college photographer, you know, like where everything's interesting. And, you, and so I said to them, Let, let's photograph you now while you're naked. I mean, not while you're naked, while you're pregnant. That's a Freudian, <laughs> Freudian slip. slip there. No, it's not that Freudian because I, we, deceived, we agreed for them to be naked. Right. But um, so it was like, let's photograph the two of you together with her nine months pregnant. And then for some reason, we did them naked. And the idea was to then photograph each year. And I think at the time we thought, oh, we'll do that naked every year too. Because <laughs> it somehow seemed more scientific. Mm-mm. It wasn't supposed to be titillating or anything it was just supposed to be this is this is who we are we're humans we're yeah. born naked and we die and we die <laughs> clothed, too, clothed. Well. let's say we die naked but you know we could die naked depending where we were but um yeah. you certainly end up naked once you're on the <laughs> <laughs> slab yeah true so the idea was anyway to photograph them every year but it wasn't carefully thought out it was just an impulsive idea mm. and we did it and then i think after the first picture we you know when it was coming up the next year you know we sort of thought hold on a minute if we do it naked ones when the kid gets to be like 13 or something he's gonna get a bit weird yeah they're gonna refuse and it's just gonna get sort of odd yeah so uh, the first the second picture when the baby ex- was born they were clothed right so we gave up on the naked mm went to the clothed and have done it i think it's i have to check but it's something like 24 years Mm. and and the idea is that they're in the same place each year it's done at the same time of year kind of on the same day same lighting same backdrop same distance from the camera that there's a sort of scientific forensic rigor attached to it where you know, you're not distracted by the light changing or anything. You just see this growth of a human. Hmm. And so that's how it was. And then after about 
I didn't think of doing anything. We just did the picture every year, every year. I never thought of publishing it. And after about 15 years, I started thinking, this is quite boring. You know, I was looking at the pictures thinking, yeah, you know, kids growing up, whatever, you know. And the and I was waiting for him to go a bit nuts and get a Mohican and tattoos and piercings. And right. it turned out that he was being quite regular, you know, he wore a kind of one year he got a bit shaggy hair and a heavy metal t-shirt and I was like god at last <laughs> you know because like my sister was a full-on punk with a 12-inch Mohican and pink hair and tattoos right. and you know when I was 16 I was in a sort of like pathetic motorbike gang and getting loads of piercings and you know yeah sort of being a bit of a tear away so this is what I expected of him and he is just a nice regular guy. Nice kid you know and so I started by year 19, I was like, this is a disaster. 19 years for nothing. And then, so it carried on. And then I realized it was only getting interesting then because it wasn't just about a kid growing up or about someone wearing, you know, punk gear or whatever. But actually it was about the process of time and aging and and then the mother in the photo, one year, I couldn't quite pin her down because it's a bit of a chore every year. We have to all get together right. and I have to kind of build the studio and measure it all out and convert my living room into a studio. It's actually an enormous chore. Right. <laughs> and, and I couldn't get hold of her. And I rang him, the, the guy, and I said, what's going on? She, you know, what's happening? We're, we're, we're going to miss the deadline for this picture this year. And he said, "That's mm, not too, not not going well. I think you need to talk to her." And I did. And she said, "I don't want to do it. This has become a document of my aging process." And I said, "No, no. It's about the boy. It's about the miracle of growth. It's about him, his birth, and then him growing up." And she went, and she said, "Yeah, it was. It was that. It's not anymore. It's actually about." our decline or our you know i don't like to think of that word i mean she used that word i think and i was like mm, all right maybe it is about the aging process but you know that's mm. who and what we are yeah it's a hard um, thing to have to uh be confronted with i guess yeah and then i started thinking well, hold on this is also a record of me getting older too even yeah. though i might not be in the picture i can't believe i've been alive long enough to have done that you yeah. know what i mean yeah what's going on there uh, so did you have to persuade her? So yeah, so we nearly it nearly ended that year. I'm so glad that she did decide yeah. to carry on. And she, I think she had a bit of a wobble about it all, and and obviously, you know, we're all everyone has different things going on in their life and different feelings and insecurities. And I, just for her that year, it just chimed with some other stuff, I guess. Mm. And well, I she was her back into it. Was she like? Uh, was she hitting some kind of significant birthday or something at that point? Or you know, what? I can't remember. But yeah. um, I'm assuming she sort of must be fifth, getting on for fifty. Well, or I think they're probably about ten years older than me. Mm. Um, so I guess she was. Yeah, she, whatever age she was, I think she was just confronting that feeling of aging or mortality or you know change mm. and. And feeling a bit uncomfortable with it. Anyway, I mean, I didn't coerce her into doing it. I just said, look, 
let's do it and decide next year if you want to end it. You know, let's at least get this picture in the bank, as it were. Yeah. And because once we miss one, it's finished. You know, that's that's why it's such a burden, actually. That was a good strategy. You, did, you, know you, I mean? you took the right. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like, if you don't, and you've wanna, got a year to think about it. Yeah, and if you don't want to, if you don't want the picture to be seen or you want to stop, then fine, do it. And so we did it, and actually, she's now absolutely fine with mm. it. And in some ways, has um, even physically flowered. And you know, like um, there was one year when you know everyone looks different year by year. But I've noticed that with her age, she's suddenly she suddenly looked great and confident and different. And, you know, so people we're all on a roller coaster, aren't we? Of different things happening. Mm. And I think she just had a year when it didn't feel so good. Um, but now she's totally on board. And the, the two men are, are OK with it, the dad and the son. Yeah, and the son is like the dad. He's a friend of mine and he's just he's pretty regular and kind of constant. And what does what does he do now? The son? He was sort of at college and doing sort of engine, like race engineering mechanics. And um, then it was getting harder to do because he was out of London, living out of London. And so then getting us all together was even harder. The one thing I've got to rely on with him is that he knows no different. He's yeah, always right. done it all his life <laughs> yeah. since birth. Since when he had no so choice So he thinks it's normal. <laughs> he, he doesn't realise it's... Some people don't do that. So... Uh, so in that way we've carried on um yeah but it is it is really poignant i think hopefully it would all you know maybe it'll all come together as a book at some stage or something because it would be nice to have a sort of maybe you know, i mean i don't lose sleep i, I don't even know what it's for mm. yeah you know or, or why we're doing it i mean it has i guess other people have done it there's that there's that um who was i talking to the other day um i was talking to matt finn and he was referencing the Brown sisters. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that Nicholas was the thing Nicholson, that I'd seen. Nixon. Yeah. Which is his wife and her sisters who he's documented exactly. in a similar it's way. It's really good. And I remember seeing that as a really young, pre-college youth photographer. You know, like just when I was getting interested in photography, maybe. Or maybe when I was at college. But I think even before. And I'd seen those pictures. And they were quite kind of inspirational. I mean, they're not <clears throat> shot on a backdrop or anything. They're right. just, I think they always meet at the same gate on a field. And it's really nice. And mm. you can see these women changing and, you know, it's, there's a lot so there. There's just a kind of logic to it in a way because, you know, if anything, photography is about, you know, kind of freezing a particular a moment mm. in time. And so it's just, it seems so kind of logical and natural that you'd sort of take that to its obvious conclusion, which is to freeze that moment you know some person or people at that particular time every year and then see it's how true it and the final inspiration for me was a peter greenaway film so i'd seen those that sisters project years before and that had stayed in my psyche mm. and and obviously you know we, we all of our ideas come from somewhere don't they and you know or inspirations and then i saw a peter greenaway film called a z and two noughts right where uh, it's impossible to try and explain it actually, but it's about these two twins that work in a zoo and they become obsessed by mortality after their wives are killed in a car crash. And they start photographing dead zoo animals on a grid with time lapse photography where a picture is taken every minute. And then they watch them speed it up 
and and they become obsessed by decomposition and change and all of this Mm -hmm. and at the end of the film these two men they're twins they stage the ultimate experiment where they both effectively commit suicide but first of all they build this enormous platform like a scientific grid uh, with an enormous time-lapse camera all wired up with lights and then they get onto the board and lie there naked and set the time-lapse camera going to take one picture every minute and then take poison or I can't remember how they kill themselves but I think they poison themselves and then the camera just films their own decomposition Mm. and I remember watching this film thinking you know it's a great film and um, and somehow the scientific madness of that coupled with those sisters the the span of time I think I'd somehow fuse those Mm -hmm. two things together yeah 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 I mean look this family thing is not about decomposition at all it really is about life it's about change and, and it yeah, it's about the process of life, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, you and know. I think that's why it's so affecting, I think, because, you know, we can all relate to it one way or another. Mm. But, yeah, yeah I, hope, I do hope, hope, to, yeah, hope to continue to see that every year yeah. until the end of time. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How uh, does it end? That's the question. Well, yeah. So how, how have you learned to do the, the video then? Have you sort of basically set about teaching yourself or, or mm. did you have some training or something? Because, you know, it strikes me that obviously, you know, there's there are sort of fundamentals to, to storytelling yeah. and, to, and, and, and to creating a narrative, but you've still got to figure out, you know, some of the specifics, as it were. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, I mean, when I went to college, uh, I did a year of sort of, so-called filmmaking and photography mm, okay. the course that I did was that combination and then in the second year you chose film or photography so I had a little bit of background training but not much and then I remember this was before in fact the whole DSLR video revolution but there had been a video digital revolution and so these the video cameras had become smaller and cheaper and you know more accessible you know at some point you know people who filmed had enormous heavy expensive cameras and then suddenly the digital thing made small cameras kind of interesting and I remember I'd done a project in Texas about pollution in Texas which I'd pitched to a magazine and it was when George Bush become president George W. Bush the son of Bush mm. and um, he, he was he'd done such a horrible thing in Texas as governor he'd introduced the most relaxed weak environmental laws he'd forgiven industry for like massive wide scale pollution uh, he, there was a number one in, of executions going on in Texas just all his social policies were horrible and, and what it meant was Texas was one of the most polluted states in America, industrially, which I thought was interesting because I thought it was just cowboys and open vistas. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I went and did this three-week road trip across Texas through the oil industry towns um, and realized that, you know, that they build 
all of the oil refineries and and major chemical factories they build them in these poor neighborhoods which are generally black african-american poor neighborhoods Hmm. the path of least resistance where people don't they don't have a voice they're kind of disenfranchised and ignored so you build these monstrous polluting factories in their neighborhoods and then you have no regulations uh, governing the emissions and so the project was about that and at the end of it it was published as a cover story in the observer but you know you flick through it your eight pages and then it's gone the following day and I just had this feeling that the subject was so important that it just wasn't enough the photography project wasn't enough so I decided to make a film about it uh, and bought you know a Panasonic DVX 100 camera which was quite small and light and uh, I literally kind of learned to use it on the aeroplane you know. right <laughs> I remember reading the instructions yeah <laughs> <clears throat> you know and yeah kind of winging it and doing it yeah uh, and made you know made a film about so that you subject. sort of threw yourself into it exactly and then you know and then suddenly the DSLR cameras started producing really good video images I mean funnily enough I've never really used them for that but mm. that's made it even more interesting or, or maybe the the edges have blurred more haven't they between photography and film yeah I mean I guess you know it comes up a fair bit but I mean when you've got the tool for the job sitting there it's mm. almost like it's an invitation to perhaps experiment with it to, to some it. extent. Yeah. And again, maybe it's another revenue stream for people, you know, when, when photography is, you know, increasingly not so much of a reliable mm. revenue stream in some context that you, perhaps it's worth exploring. What What's your, you're getting commissioned to, to do, I mean, like the Hackney film, is that, can, mm. is that something you've just sort of done off your own back? Yeah, I started it off my own back and then um, found, and then I got, I pitched it to the Museum of London who have put some money in and they're sort of acquiring it for their collection in a way as a historical artefact about London. So that was good and then got some money from somewhere else from a grant. So that's helped it tick along. It's never going to be a great money earner, but Mm -mm. it meant at least there was some money. I mean, because editing a film is where it gets expensive. Yeah. You Are know. you going to do that yourself? Or you, you, no, what, I'm looking you for an editor now, actually, right. To, right. to work. I like working with someone at that stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, huh. But, yeah, I mean, I think some people are making, you know, using film as a revenue stream, but I think more in the sort of fashion world. Yeah. And, um, well, I think there's corporate. a lot of crossover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, like um, I noticed that Juno Calypso's directing the Burberry oh, really? uh, Christmas ad. Right. And I'm, yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure if you asked her, she'd say that she, I don't, don't suppose she has ever directed anything yeah. before. But, you know, if you've got the creative ideas and you're just the sort of person who is going to just take it on and mm. go for it, then then why not? Yeah, there. I guess there are different possibilities. That's true. Although I don't think that I don't think um, in the sort of documentary realm, it hasn't opened up great revenue streams or exciting areas. I mean, there's brilliant documentary films being made, 
Mm. But that idea of maybe magazines or photographers crossing over into film mm. in the photography realm, I think that's happened less than I would have predicted. Yeah, um, I mean, I suppose you've got you've got with YouTube, you know, you've immediately got access to an audience if you can find a way to create one, mm. and you don't have to think about going to Channel Four or something when you can just put it into the world. And whether that's uh, necessarily what people want to do, I don't know, mm. but but it's at least a way to get it out there. True. True. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone is, yeah, people are looking for moving image content. But yeah, and branded content and all that yeah. crap. You know, that there are ways to leverage that possibility, I suppose. Apparently not, I don't know, Zed, yeah. I haven't got a <laughs> Well, I've just cornered the market in, you know, like documentary films that are ty- very time-consuming and, you know, they, they're not, they're really not worth it doing it for financial reasons, I'd say. No. But you just get addicted to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just really interesting. And you start and it's like getting your corner of your sleeve caught on a piece of industrial machinery. You just get slowly pulled in. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Do yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? There's no choice. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, um, I could go on indefinitely, frankly. And mm. there's lots of questions. I didn't even go to my questions. So, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, we should uh, turn it off. Which is read. the sign, uh, which is a good sign to say the least. Um, but thank you so much oh, as I say it was great to finally get you um, I think it's important that we talked for the purposes of getting your um, contribution <laughs> and, um, and and as I say a lot of my listeners will be will be really uh, you know really happy to, to have you add your contribution so thank you very much Ed yeah, and good luck with here. everything um, look forward to seeing the film when it finally yeah, comes to hopefully fruition hopefully in spring and, and the, new pro- the, the new project with the you know which you you haven't even the mystery even, project the mystery project yeah environmentally speaking I mean that before I go I mean not to end on a massive downer but it seems to me that I don't know how you feel about it in terms of the, the spectrum of pessimism mm-hmm. when it comes to this but clearly if it must be very much in the forefront of your mind if that's if that's essentially what the project is about mm. um I don't see any great cause for optimism in terms of the future of humanity. <laughs> this <laughs> is that a great for, How's ending, that for a fucking downer yeah. of an ending? But um, in all seriousness, I don't see any way out, really, of the, of the inevitable demise of the human race. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, on uh, that note... Uh, yeah, on that note. I just want to let that hang silently. Yeah. No, I don't want to implicate I, myself I'm, I'm by not answering. Even, yeah, I'm not even going to get your, um, I'm not even gonna get your, your view yeah, on it. Yeah, my only thing that I'll say that's hopeful is let us maybe delude ourselves. You know, when things get so bad, mm. like, for instance, Trump or Brexit or whatever, then you just think things are happening that are so obscene and unthinkable. Mm-hmm. that maybe they're going to be the catalyst right. for this wake-up. Right. So then there's a turnaround after it. You know what I mean? Mm. That's the only thing I okay. hope. That's good. You've, let, you've given us cause for yeah, optimism. Yeah, that's that's good. Well that. done. You turned it around. Right. Thanks, Ed. See you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>